retail theft, bad firing, and the difference between cyber and IT. Welcome to another episode of the Security Management Highlights podcast from ASIS International. Every month we focus on the trends and topics the world needs to know about your world of keeping information and people safe. I'm your host, Brendan Howard, and today we're talking about a trio of timely topics on top of security professionals' minds. First, Melissa Muir, HR Director for the City of Shoreline, Washington, talks about how to improve involuntary separations. Then, Rex Lam, CPPPSP, reaches us from Hong Kong to lay out the terminology many people get confused about cybersecurity. And last but not least, have you seen all those shoplifting and smash and grab incidents in retail stores? Well, security management's Megan Gates has, and she went to talk to experts about where these stolen goods go and why it's a national, not just a local problem. So first, Melissa Muir, Director of Human Resources and Organizational Development for the City of Shoreline, Washington, right next to Seattle, gets us started on layoffs and terminations. When there is a bad exit in these meetings, whose fault is it? And how can everybody do it better? In my work with security, there's a frequent complaint. We call it the 11th hour. When's this gonna happen? About five minutes, can you be there? And so security is deeply frustrated with HR. And I want a chance to say, "Mm, goes both ways, security. And from the HR perspective, Often, and I I don't want to be careful generalizing, security comes in, creates drama and a mess and chaos. The person is gone, and now we, HR, have the next 18 months to repair the damage that's done with the existing employees who are left and who have been a part of this. So I think there are there's plenty of blame to go around in the more interesting places to say, then, how do we get sooner? And the sooner is not simply well, HR, if you just called me earlier, everything would be okay. It's how do we develop a relationship between security and HR so that we're communicating regularly? And then when these things happen, we're both on the same page on it and we're there. And part of that, I think, is getting connected long before. I talk about it as upstream of the involuntary termination and showing some curiosity rather than judgment in that relationship in terms of, hey, HR, what are your stressors right now? What's really happening? What's happening in employee relations? Because those are the canaries to the eventual involuntary separations, right? The performance issues, the conduct issues. So looking at what employee relations issues HR is struggling with and asking why we can support or awareness or training, what we can offer is a great way, I think, to come in sooner in the process so that when those do come up, we already have a plan in place and a process. Is there a way you could talk about maybe getting it into the trenches with a specific example? Because I was thinking maybe the easier, not so easier ones are the ones where you just have a process for someone who you are worried will be hostile or overreact to this situation. So you have a person, so you want security to be there to help HR and make sure nothing physical happens or make sure that, you know, there isn't this yelling fight that spills over that it feels like a very controlled situation. But maybe what you're talking about is like canary in a coal mine 
we're having problems with the company or there's a group of people? What, it, what is an example of an issue where getting together earlier, HR and security would make these involuntary separations better? Is it the fact there's going to be a lot of them? What is it? Sure. I think with some economic uncertainty and I talk about it a lot. We have a lot of people bringing a lot of baggage into the office, whether online or in person. And so not everybody is bringing their best self to work. And now you throw in a merger, you throw a downsizing, you throw a reorganization, and tensions can get pretty high. People sense there's something in the air. So I think that's a those are the great opportunities, maybe with a larger one, to really partner and look at some easy things we can do to bring some of that tension down and to be ready, right? Because I have an example just before the pandemic reorganization of a large agency and they let 11 of the 17 directors go and they did it quickly and they did it with no notice and they walked people out what one of them referred to as perp walked them (laughs) down with visible security, led them out the back entrance that, as I have shared before, let them out at the garbage dump in the building, right? So probably the most humiliating exit, everybody around, everybody tension. And that was security and compliance feeling like that was the safest way to do it quickly. What I think with the debrief and the talk was, What about less visible security? What about partnering before to set up the room well, to have the right players in the room, to have somebody that has de-escalation skills rather than somebody who's the direct supervisor and might create some tension? So identifying and asking some of those questions, security has a way to really influence it without being necessarily in the room, right? Whether it's in a presence on the floor whether it's a a call button you could ring. There might be a lot of ways we can help HR set up and structure it in a way that the security presence is there without the physical presence of somebody looking down or, or possibly escalating the situation. You know, you mentioned people maybe not being their best selves online. We also know that the internet allows people to communicate wonderfully. All these social media platforms allow people instantaneous communication with people they care about and finding strangers they have affinities with. But the other problem is when we are on our worst moments, the smartphone is right there. So somebody experiences a traumatic event like being laid off or fired and the smartphone's right there. So they immediately, they feel bad. And so there is a risk of people just even once they're out of the building, there's risk to the company. What things do you do to make this a potentially a more positive experience so that potentially we laid off somebody we like, and if they could boomerang back at some time when they're still around and we have the money, we'd love to have them back. But now that can't happen because we sort of botched this firing. What are the things that can be done to make that more positive, a positive sense for the person? It's shifting from former employee, terminated employee, separated employee to alumni of your organization. (laughs) And I really, really mean it that we are building alumni relationships in that last conversation. And when we talk to people, anybody who's been laid off, who's been involuntary separated, they will remember that conversation for the rest of their lives, right? Maybe, especially if we're doing multiple, we might be having more than one they're going to remember that single one. So putting yourself in that perspective, bringing compassion 
and understanding, no matter what the situation is, to recognize that allowing a person to leave the organization where they may have not just their paycheck, um, their colleagues, maybe their identity, right? There is so much connected up with our work that allowing them to keep their dignity is one of the most important things we can do. And thinking of what in that package, I often talk about soft landings, that it's really important to allow them to go and and some, and they and senior management sometimes will criticize that as rewarding bad behavior or offering something you don't need to. And I really think from a security standpoint, the biggest thing we can do is security help people like me understand how critical this is because former employees that do damage to our organization will always be connected with our organization. They are always yours, even if they only work for a short time. They're your alumni, you are stuck with them. It will be the headline with your company name. So think about what you want that alumni relationship to be like before you say goodbye. Um, I think there are so many ways we can do little things, whether it's allowing them to share a note to their colleagues in the notice when you let them know, let people know they're gone to not contesting unemployment, to extending their employee assistance benefits so that they have some help when other benefits are laying off, right? Anything we can do where we give them dignity, compassion, and allow them to walk out kind of still having some respect is I think the single biggest thing we can do in a conversation again that someone's gonna remember for the rest of their lives. Check-in time. When was the last time you debriefed with HR about what went well and what went badly with an involuntary separation? The best time is regularly, but the next best time is today. Okay, so out of physically walking people out of the buildings and into technology. Rexlam CPP PSP is chairman of the ASIS Hong Kong chapter and very into security technology as senior consultant at Guardian Forest Security Limited. So we asked Rex, hey, where does education on technology security start? He says it starts with the right terminology. But first, why do you have to learn this? Almost every single physical security system sits on top of an IT environment. So there is no escaping from uh, understanding all these computer stuff. But I, I would like also to add that coming from a technical background, that anything that is has something to do with technical solutions or you have to solve this from a technical means, it's easy. Anything that is difficult in my in my career as a consultant, anything that is difficult is you try to get some thing to be done by a person. If you're trying to get something to be done <laughs> by a technical piece of device, you know, be it a computer, be it an IT systems, be it a firewall, it's easy. You, you, you configure it correctly, which you can always find someone who is capable, configure it correctly, and it will continue to work correctly for times to come. So I, I think there, there's two takeaway here. One is um, there's no escaping, you know, almost everything sits on IT system now. And the second thing is, don't be alarmed or get, you know, feared the technical stuff because actually the technical stuff is the easy part. The people stuff that you have already been doing for a very long time will continue to be difficult because it involves people. From your perspective, if there are people who've been in physical security and they feel confident with that and they recognize, as you're saying, it's it's really hard to get people to do things and I'm good at that. 
the cyber stuff. Now it just feels a little weird. Where do you think people should go? What kind of education or what kind of resources uh, should they pursue to kind of brush up on their own understanding of cyber security, cyber concepts? Where do they start? What do they do? Okay, it's a very good question. I actually have a presentation that I do all the time in Hong Kong or, or elsewhere. It's um, it, it is important to understand some very similar terminologies that people use all the time, but oftentimes they're using these different terminology interchangeably without understanding what they really means. So for example, we have the word cybersecurity and we have the, the term um, network security, IT security, information security. Are, are they all the same thing or are they not? Um, my experience is oftentimes people lump things together. So, so for example, oh, uh, uh, some people will, oh, anything that has something to do with a computer, uh, I'm going to lump it into cybersecurity. Some, sometimes it's because they don't understand. So they, they hear a word, they, they, they would, they would uh, start lumping things together. Sometimes it's driven by commercial interest. So if, if, I'm, if I sell hammers, I'm going to tell you everything is a hammer problem. <laughs> um, if I sell firewalls, I'm going to tell you everything is a firewall problem. Everything is, it, it, it's a firewall cybersecurity issue. You know, you buy this, you're golden. Um, so there, there are there are different motivations or, or different reasons for this for this confusion. And if you are a cyber, if you are a security professionals, I don't care if you're in the logical space or in the physical space. It is important to understand this, these difference. Any kind of security measures falls into two realms. One is called the physical security measure. One is called the logical security measures. So physical security measures, you know, we I, I think we all understand what that is. You know, you have something physical means to enforce the security. So for example, if you have a lock, you know, it's enforcing that security through a physical mean. In another realm, we call it the logical security realm. For example, you log into your yahoo.com email, you type in your username, you type in your password, you click enter, right? So it's a logical security, meaning that that security check, it's enforced by a logical means. That logical means is I'm going to compare your password. I'm going to hash your password. I'm going to compare that hash with the hash that I have on file. If they match, I let you in. If they don't match, I tell you that, you know, you entered the wrong password or the wrong username. So no matter how strong you are physically, you can't get through that security check because it's a logical measure. So any kind of measure, it falls into two realms. Now, next, cybersecurity. Cybersecurity, it's any kind of technical or administrative measures that you do to mitigate threats coming specifically from the cyberspace. So for example, I am training my employees to stop clicking on phishing email. I think that's a cybersecurity measure. <laughs> I am employing a firewall at my outermost perimeter to block out denial of service attack or block out all the unused ports. That's a cybersecurity measures. Following that, network security. Now, network security, I'm going to argue that cybersecurity is a subset of network security. Okay. Now, network security, it's a technical, administrative, or physical measures that protect your network infrastructure from both, uh, this, is a distinct, this is a distinction, from both external and internal devices and users. So previously, cyberspace, it's outside, Network security, you also deal with insiders. Because what, what we don't talk about enough, it, it's how potent 
the threat is from insiders. I think you can ask any kind of information security uh, professionals that insiders threat, it's more potent hands down than outside threat. So network security, for example, very simple. You prevent an unauthorized access to your physical network port in your company. That's a network security. I see exposed network ports all the time and it, it's not good. For example, we isolate different departments network into virtual networks so that we kind of segregate different departments so that if, if this dude in this department clicked on the phishing email and got infected by a ransomware, it's more difficult for that ransomware to try to propagate through a different network, like say finance department. That's a network security. Following that, IT security. So I'm also going to argue that network security is a subset of IT security. Now, IT security are security measures that protect digital information assets, application processes, and hardwares from both physical and logical attacks. For example, I think we are doing this quite good now. I, I think we're all familiar with um, the Windows Defender. I, I think they're there everywhere now. Um, the Windows Defender has improved a lot since its early days. So that's an endpoint. Uh, well, when I say endpoint, I mean, you know, the, the computer, you, you, the thing that the user is using, it's an endpoint. You know, your, your cell phone is an endpoint. Your tablet is an, is an endpoint. Uh, the endpoint security, it's an IT security measures. Enforcing a strong password policies, it's an IT security measures. Protecting your server room from people that try to enter it uh, without enough credentials, that's IT security. And following that, the last train, it's information securities. Information security, it's the effort to protect information assets in tangible and intangible forms from all threats using all disciplines. Right now, I, I think a lot of companies, we still have what we call the, like, like a siloed approach. So, you know, the physical guy, you know, deal with the physical stuff. The investigation guy, deal with the investigation. The fraud guy, deal with the fraud. The cybersecurity guy, deal with cybersecurity. So for a successful information security program to work, you, you can't have these silos between them, okay? So all the different kind of security disciplines uh, need to kind of, kind of work together. Some are, some aren't. And for those who aren't, it's for different reasons. It could be politics, it could be job security, it could be they don't know what's going on, uh, it could be anything. Okay, class, pop quiz. Question one. Can you explain in your own words, physical security, logical security, cybersecurity, network security, IT security, and information security? Question two, do you see unfortunate silos of security at your workplace? So you've heard Rex explain how interconnected but independent these security domains can be, but also says they all need to talk. So do they talk where you work? And could you help if they don't? And now, theft. We are seeing on the news and on phone recordings on social media, retail theft, both small and big. Individuals and groups are stealthily taking or snatch and grabbing large swaths of entire shelves of products at stores. Well, Security Management's own Megan Gates has been researching the topic for a story, 
And in the same way Rex broke down the hierarchy of IT security, Megan's going to do it for us when it comes to crime rings behind these very public store thefts. This is a thing that's been going on for the past couple of months or even the past year, especially in D.C. I've seen lots of videos and, you know, stores really changing the way that they secure retail product because we're having either a couple of different people or a big group go in and steal what seems to be a select group of merchandise and then leaving the store. And so I was curious to find out, okay, what's happening with this product? Yeah. Obviously this person does not need like 25 different bottles of face cream. <laughs> they might, but odds are not good. Right. Um, and so that sort of led me to diving into the world of organized retail crime and really looking at the different players involved and how these rings sort of operate. And so the people in the store, they're called your booster. Um, they're sort of the lower tier people um, and there's three different types. So there's boosters that, you know, they're only stealing in their local community. There's a second tier booster. They're going maybe across the state line in like a very sort of close state area. Think of DC, Maryland, Virginia. And then there are the third level boosters, which they are sort of traveling up and down a specific geographic area to sort of steal a targeted group of merchandise. Can I ask one question about that? And it doesn't sound like it really is to take advantage of state to state differences and how they manage that crime. It's really just here's a freeway that makes it easy for us to move along this route, or here's a general area we're comfortable being in, we're familiar with it. But it doesn't sound like it's we're trying to take advantage of local or state laws about how they handle this. Well, okay. maybe. <laughs> maybe. Okay. The jury is out on that um, because, you know, these groups are are savvy and they have learned how different, you know, areas might prosecute different levels of crime. What's considered a felony in one state or for theft might not be considered a felony in another state. So um, and then it's also going places where they are you know, maybe familiar with the store layout. They know what the security um, situation is in the store uh, and they know that they're going to have the product that they're looking for. Okay. So you've got the boosters. Uh, they gather up the stuff. You, you gave this example earlier with me when we were off about like somebody comes in with a garbage bag and they put a bunch of skincare in, they run out. What do they do with that bag full of skincare? So the booster is taking those items usually to a crew boss. Um, you know, the person who's in charge and receives information about this is what we're going to go after today. Those products are then transferred to someone called a fencer. Um, so this might be a person who, you know, my understanding is back in the 80s, fencers were people who they would get stolen product in. They would then sell it maybe out of their house to their local community today with the power of the Internet. Uh, fencers you know, can still operate in that same way, or they could then put that stolen product up on like Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, other peer-to-peer -peer sales sites. They also then might have relationships with smaller businesses where, you know, they're selling that stolen product to the business, which is then using it to stock their store and selling that to customers who are not aware that it is a stolen product. Right. So working alongside the fencers. Some fencers will do this and others won't are cleaners and they are people who are making sure that that product that you're seeing for sale, say on Facebook marketplace, 
does not look like a stolen product. So they're taking tags off, they're removing, you know, security tag information, uh, product numbering, all of that kind of stuff to make it look like a, you know, normal, clean product. Yeah. And then in some sort of bigger instances, we have people called diverters, and they might run sort of a warehouse and do sort of a major, they're selling to other businesses. So sort of doing that ecosystem on a much bigger scale. And they might have a warehouse somewhere where they're sort of storing product and then shipping it out. So they seem very, very legitimate. And because there's a lot of money changing hands and you don't want, you know, the FBI, the IRS to sort of see what's happening. Uh, you might be working with a money launderer who's setting up sort of shell companies to sort of move and circulate all of that cash, you know, and all those financial transactions to make them appear legitimate. And sort of sitting up at the top of all this is often someone we call an orchestrator. And they might just be a person or an organization that they're only interested in, you know, perpetuating this organized retail crime cycle, but they could also be involved with other sort of organized crime aspects like drug and, you know, gun trafficking, human trafficking, a lot of those other sort of traditional criminal plots that we're familiar with. So we have, I feel like there's this weird divergence with people's feelings about this. So one thing is this could be funding larger criminal international enterprises. And so I think you've also talked to some people at that level, the national and international level, but maybe we, we could start with going right back down to the in the store experience. We also talked about earlier, we were talking about laws and with good intentions, oftentimes legislators push up the threshold for shoplifting and theft laws, the amount of money up, because they don't want people going to jail for feeding their family or some minor thing or a couple minor things. So it can be higher, 500, 800, $1,000 is the threshold from misdemeanor to a felony. Then prosecutors don't want to take it. So there's a lot of citizens out there that are like, we're really frustrated that it feels like theft is totally okay. Why am I paying for this if I can just walk in and take things off the shelf? The people running the store security, maybe from your perspective, or if you've talked to them, how are they dealing with this? I mean, one way is they're protecting the product and making it harder to steal. What else? Yeah. So you're seeing lots of different stores, um, you know, install sort of cabinets that lock. So things like your laundry detergent, um, you know, different pharmaceuticals, that kind of thing is in a lock case. You have to press a button. A sales associate comes over, unlocks it. You take your one thing out. They lock it back up to sort of prevent somebody from coming in and sort of sweeping everything off the shelf. Other things that you're seeing is more investments in surveillance cameras and ability to sort of, okay, if somebody has come in and stolen a bunch of product, we want to be able to ideally identify that person so that if they come back in again, it's immediately flagged in our system, but also to have that so that we can give it to um, the police and ideally a prosecutor to bring a case against this person. Okay, so that's kind of the that's the uh, in the trenches level at the higher level about where the money from this resold retail products where they're going. What are the people at the national or international level you might have talked to about where the stuff's going? Yeah, so I had a really great interview with Raul Aguilar. He is the deputy assistant director for countering transnational organized crime at the 
Homeland Security Investigations, part of the Department of Homeland Security. That's a very big title. (laughs) (laughs) Do you understand? What exactly is under their umbrella? Do you know? Uh, So he's looking at organized retail crime, uh, cargo theft, and yeah, how that all intersects with other sort of drug trafficking, uh, gun trafficking, human trafficking, and how all of those elements combine. And so it was good to talk to him. He's worked with DHS in some capacity for, I believe, almost 20 years, has a lot of experience. He used to work in Mexico and other parts of the world because they have offices stationed you know, around around the world, especially in sort of areas and hubs that are sort of hot spots for organized crime activity. Um, for instance, like Hong Kong, a couple of places in South America, to sort of be able to connect the dots on all of these different schemes. Because he said one of the things that he's learned as an investigator throughout his career is that you might have someone going into a store and it seems like a sort of one-off incident. But over time, you can see how that's connected to a much broader criminal organization and how all of these things are interconnected. And so I think it gives a good talking to him, really put it into perspective of why this is not just sort of while the most obvious element of this might be happening in sort of your pharmacy down the street, um, it is connected usually to something much more serious. And so that's why, you know, prosecutors, uh, law enforcement and retailers are really like, we need to work together to make this, to really raise public awareness about this issue. And then also make sure that investigators and prosecutors have all the tools that we can provide them with to bring good cases and hold people accountable. Well, I feel a little better that some people are on the job and trying to sort out this retail theft issue. And that's it for the latest episode of Security Management Highlights. Thanks to our guests, Melissa Muir, Rex Lamb, CPP PSP, and Megan Gates. If you're interested in reading more about these topics, check out the links in the show notes. If you got excited about something here, share this with your friends inside and outside of security management. The world needs to know how vital and awesome this field is. And leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We would appreciate it. Find us at sm.asisonline.org. And hey, be safe out there.